Welcome to Business News and Other Shit. I'm your host, Amr. Thank you so much for tuning in to a show that's been called The Perfect Listen for Busy Fifth Graders with ADD. I'm an entrepreneur and an aspiring stand-up comedian, improviser, and my favorite job, stay-at-home dad. In a previous life, I graduated from the University of Chicago, <clears throat> the Harvard of the Midwest, with an A.B. in economics. And after that, for 10 long years, I worked as an executive director for J.P. Morgan. <clears throat> Sold my soul. You may be asking why someone in their right mind with a wife and two kids would give up such a prestigious and profitable position to become a lowly comedian. And to that, I would say, uh, it's way more fun and maybe... Don't be such a jerk about it. Our goal with the show is to entertain you with funny stories, jokes, and one-liners about investing and business and money, and hopefully make you a stronger and more financially secure person. Basically, we want to help you increase the size of your backup stash. Backup stash being that secret stash of money that keeps you afloat after you tell that horrible boss to get the hell out of here, or you want to travel around Southeast Asia for the next six months. Join us every Thursday. We tell some funny stories, jokes, have a good old time, and you know what? Maybe learn a few important things. content, you know, other sorts of, because you can't really do stand-up in a virtual environment. It doesn't, doesn't really work. So everyone's asking for like, you know, funny videos and, and things like that. And I'm joining, like, I'm supposed to join this company's meeting about this, all lawyers, and they want me to just join and do stuff for like 30 minutes. I was like, this is, feels like I'm a monkey being paid, but I'm like, I'll do it for like a thousand dollars. Like, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just like weird stuff like that, but it's, I mean, it's very hard as when you're a, a primarily a stand-up, like that's all you want to do is just do stand-up. And this is like, feels like it's against, like, I don't want to be a YouTube, like, sensation. Right. Not what I want to do. But I'm like, at the same time, you have to adapt or die. Yeah. You, I would right. say, you figure out the stand-up virtual. Figure out the modality that, that could work. Yeah. Yeah, I, like, there, there's some stuff that works. Like, we're, we're, I have a company in Chicago that produces shows and, and runs a bunch of stuff. And we're doing, like, pre-recorded content but we're curating it so we're making it like a show where we handpick like the comics and they send us a clip and then we make like a, a show like a virtual show that people can join and watch and like comment on and so we're doing that um but that's still like the audience is already there at the show it's not like you know yeah. they have to do it live because that's so awkward to just have a comic do a set with no audience like it just yeah it just doesn't feel organic so we're trying to think of other ways to make it better and fun for the comics. Have you guys watched much of the? Have you guys watched much of the late night shows lately? I've seen late the the John Oliver's show. That's the only one I've watched for no audience, and I think that's. I think his is fine. I think he's just because he's a stand up, so he knows how to deliver to, to silence. I guess which is a part of the game. Yeah. Um But I haven't watched like any of the main ones yet. Yeah, they're, 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 I'm a big Colbert fan. Really difficult to watch. I've basically been just not watching it. Trevor Noah, hard, yeah. really hard to watch. Well, I went to this conference with my daughter. She's 14 and she's an aspiring YouTuber and follows all of these YouTubers and TikTokers. And it, it was amazing the power of the people on social media. 15 year old mm -hmm. girls that have a TikTok with 30 million people. Yeah. And it was kind of eye opening for me, like, because I'm a marketer and I've been sort of compartmentalizing those posts and not paying that much attention to it but I went to this conference and I was like whoa I need to be paying attention to this world a yeah. little bit because it was just it's wild how I mean it's it's crazy because even at the comedy clubs like I work Zanies a bunch and Zanies will have like stand-up headliners pretty much seven days a week but then once in a while they'll bring in like a YouTube person who yeah. will just sell out the club on a Monday and just never, have yeah 
Yeah, like 200, like, teeny boppers will be there. Like, and then <laughs> oh, every, yeah. every comic who's on the show before the headliner is just bombing because it's, like, not – they're not there for stand-up. They're there for, like, the podcast or whatever weird shit is about to happen. So it's just funny to us. We're all like, what the hell does this person have that we don't? And then they start talking, like, it's just that they built up a fan base with all their fans. Um, I felt about it. Because it was all teeny boppers. I'm like, I'm not that – girls sponsored by Dunkin Donuts I have yeah. door, you know thousands that's of crazy. people at the conference paying money to be yeah that's, I went to um not kind of in a similar vein but obviously different but I went to this thing called complex con which is all like the streetwear um like hype beast like all those people who like drop like clothes that are like super yeah. expensive and I've never, I didn't really like, I knew about that, but I didn't really like understand what that was. And I went to the one in Chicago and it's just like all these young kids who are, I guess, apparently extremely wealthy and they just run from shoe drop to shoe drop buying shit. And I'm like, well, this is like the, we it's just like t-shirts. It's not like good stuff. Oh, it's like people are paying <laughs> thousands of dollars. Yeah. And it's just like for, for the social media, so they can post on Instagram and say they have it. Um, yeah. And I'm like, man, I need to. I need to drop like a, a keychain or something that's hot and make a ton of money, you know? God, I just, I just hate it. I just don't want to do it, but I'm like, I, I'm starting to get a little bit better at it. And like, cause it's like, at the end of the day, it's all humor. It's all comedy. So you can make it work, but it's just, yeah. you got to accept the fact that you're not going to be doing it live for at least another month with this quarantine. I think that I, I was talking to uh, Azhar uh, about this Vic a little bit. And, yeah. um, you know, his, his big thing is like, uh, let me get my zoom back in here. There we go. His big thing is like, um, and he's right. Comedy is a dialogue. It's not a monologue. You know, it's not like you're a, you're a, uh, you, you, it requires the comedian to, you know, present a joke. And then the comedian obviously waits for a response from the audience and back and forth and back and forth. It's kind of a dance. Yeah. Right. Um, even though it looks like it's a monologue, it's definitely not. It's the furthest thing from a monologue. And so when you're trying to do the Colbert or Oliver or whatever, it's really difficult because there's no back and forth. It's, it literally is just a monologue. So it doesn't work as well. I, I find myself just not laughing as much with John Oliver and with Colbert lately. Um, Cause I often like to laugh with the audience in a way, you know? Um, and so, you know, what I told him was like, Hey man, I think there's something to be said for doing comedy on zoom. You know, like this, where you can get 100, 200 people in a room and, you know, you deliver the joke and wait for the response, deliver the joke, wait for the response. Um, or I've even, I mean, Chris has been presenting this idea, Chris Broadhead, of um, VR podcasting. He's been talking to me about it for like a year and a half. Chris is like a, you know, total tech geek. And I've just been like, Chris, you want to do VR podcasting? Let's do it, brother. You know what I mean? So we've never done it, but I'm like, why don't we get some work? Right, VR yeah. cameras, and people feel like they're in the room with you, and then there's a call and response, just like there is with a stage. It's not anywhere near as good, but it's definitely better than what I think Oliver and Colbert do now. Yeah. Well, I, so I don't have the balls to get up and do comedy as much as I love comedy and humor. Is oh, but that, you were just fine. But you were just fine being <laughs> role playing a prostitute, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> no problem. <laughs> you but have so that, many good stories. I bet if you were to tell me. Oh stand -up, yeah, it would be I have. I'm writing a book, so yeah. Oh, no. awesome! Great. <laughs> uh, is that part of like the adrenaline though, and like the rush of it? Is the yeah? I mean, it's 
it's kind of like it's a little bit uh, masochist because it's one of those things where like you do it and it's really hard like I'm gonna tell you like starting off stand-up it's not easy right you're just going on stage at like dive bars at like two in the yeah. morning for like a year like that's like your life and doing Ooh. open mic and it's like you get that one laugh though and that keeps you going to the next mic and the next and then you eventually start getting to a point where you're like you're doing better shows you're like opening for bigger people you're working the comedy club so then it gets like more fun consistently but that's the kind of thing about stand-up you can fail at any mo moment like there's that element always there like you get on stage and maybe the show's going well but for some reason they don't like you like there's so many variables that come into play so it, it's one of those things where like you have to be a little bit kind of psychotic to do it but yeah. it's like once you do it there's not no other comparison like there's not like it's not like alcohol it's not like sex it's not it's like there's nothing that that re that you reach that's that good um, it's like, kind of like, I, I cool into like a runner's high. Like I work out a lot and like, you know, after a certain point of running, you get this like kind of euphoric feeling yeah. and it's the same thing on stage, but it's even amplified, like just off like a really good set. You can ride that feeling for like the whole night. Like it's great. But now it's like all, all of us com comics like addicts and now we don't have our fix and now we're all like sitting around, like, what do we do? You know? So it's really. Opportunity to disrupt that and figure out a different way to do it. Yeah, and that's what I think, I think it's forcing more creativity, which is good. You know, it's forcing yeah. people to do things differently, so. Um, I mean, you're saying yeah, after we'll, this, like, going to the movies is not going to be the same. Going to a concert hall is not going to be the same, because you're not going to no. sit right next to somebody. Yeah, for a long time, I imagine, right? Yeah. Like, even if it's like they gave it all clear, like, I'm still not, I'm social distancing for a long time. Like, Forever. I'm not being <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, exactly. they, they've been talking. So by the way, guys, we are, we are, you know, we're off to the races. I've, we could just continue in with this as the podcast. Um, and in that case, I just for safety reasons, I don't really know you guys very well. So I'm going to just, <laughs> just in case, yes. just in case you never know. Right. Where'd you get uh, that? <laughs> yeah, seriously, where'd you, I was going to say, where'd you get that and how many more do you have? Can you sell yeah. them to us? I had a guy, it's so funny, just a month ago, I had a guy, uh, uh, one of my employees um, working here at the restaurant, drywalling, re repairing, cleaning, doing all sorts of stuff. And he literally went and bought masks, but he didn't even buy like one pack. He bought like five packs. So you guys need masks. Totally got them for you. 50 bucks each. Yeah. The low, low price. The low, low yeah. price. Yeah. But no, I, I mean, I, it seems to me right in this world that we're in that um well so let's do okay so let's do introductions again um but let's let's do it the right way so so karen i've been introduced to you by the producer of this podcast chris broadhead and when i saw your um uh, linkedin profile i was like what you are a humor researcher like yep. that's my passion i love comedy that's that's from what i can tell vic's passion as well so it's almost like it's almost like we get to peek a little bit behind the curtain of like how you know someone who's actually studied comedy sees it and might even help us understand ourselves or what we do now Vic I know because you know you do some comedy related stuff for the corporate world you probably have a better understanding of this than I do but I thought that was I mean from all the things you've done Karen the Chicago police and working with the government and get, becoming a, a PhD you're a doctor right you're a, I don't know how many people can say they worked as an undercover prostitute for the Chicago police and <laughs> And they have a doctorate. Oh, I bet no one can say that. That's a good point, actually. That might become my new uh, 
mission statement or tagline. <laughs> I, I just picture your business card. It's like former prostitute doctor. It's like it just would be. It just would be such a weird. People are like, wait, this isn't real. No, it, it sounds like a sitcom. Honestly, it sounds like a. There you like go. You could totally, on that, yeah. There, yeah, there's there's definitely content ideas, but that's awesome. Like that's. But the humor cool. is something that everybody can relate to, so I like that as a topic to study scientifically because a lot of academic research is a bit of a snore, to be honest, <laughs> and difficult yeah. to process and apply to mainstream. So humor is something that no matter who I'm talking to, they're like, yeah, I totally get it. And so I wanted to look at it at the application of the workplace. So been at jobs where I freaking hated it. I'm looking at the clock all day, feel totally unsatisfied, totally unfulfilled. But if you bring in that element of humor, it tends to help employees get engaged, be more creative, you know, help with difficult situations. Like right now in the ER and nurses and doctors, they're using like that dark gallows humor to cope. They just are because they have to. Same thing with law yep. enforcement and the military. They use humor to help cope with difficult situations. So I just love that topic because it's been found scientifically to have numerous benefits. And this, I'm talking about positive humor, not like, you know, negative or racial or gender. Degrading, racism. yeah. Positive humor. Karen, shown to have great benefit in the workplace. So Karen, at, you're currently the chief customer officer, is that right? Yes. At, at SIP yep. Science, which is a, a company that has an app that gets beverages to people who, who are basically signed up on the app. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So we bring a membership that will offer half price discounts on alcohol through our app. Got it. Yes. All right, so so um, it's almost like would you say like almost like the Instacart of um, of yeah. you know yeah, alcohol almost, beverages? It's, it's specifically for inside bars and restaurants. So you don't want to pay sixteen bucks for that fancy martini. You download our app and purchase a membership, and then you can get a certain number of drinks at half price. Nice, got it. Okay, so at this company you work at, would you say the company is successfully using humor to? Um, relieve tensions, lighten the load, and make the work environment more positive, especially more psychologically positive? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a small agile group of us in the executive leadership team, and we've had to pivot, obviously, with everything that's going on in the world. We had set for this big, huge launch in New York, and then we we're gonna come to Chicago. All of that's on hold, so if we didn't use humor, we'd probably be curled up in a fetal position with one sock on. So <laughs> we definitely had to use humor to adjust, but we were using it even in our marketing and our branding and on social because we want to bring an air of like fun and more experience and you don't have to spend you know 75% of your disposable income on alcohol. You can go out, have a nice experience and not break your, the budget. What we found mm -hmm. a lot of consumers have champagne tastes, but they're going to the dive bar because the dive bar is what they can afford. Right. Well, here's, here's my issue with all this, right? I, Sip Science, I think, makes sense where you can bring in the humor. It's a small, agile team. But I got to tell you, I worked at J.P. Morgan for a decade, and by the end of it, I was like, get me the fuck out of here because everyone <laughs> has got you know, a stick up their ass, and uh, okay. you, can't, you can't have fun. And the fun that is had, it feels like it's done only by management, often in a not crude way, but like... Um, Mandatory fun. Yeah, maybe maybe mandatory, mandatory. but also because they're because they're the big swinging dicks fun. making a whole bunch of money. Because they're the big swinging dicks making a whole bunch of money, like it's easy for them to have fun. And it's there was this like there was this weird class structure I felt like, and I was like, fuck this, I got to get out of here. Because because a big part of my life was humor and fun, and I'm like, I'm not having it here. My soul is just curling up and dying. 
on the floor with one sock on, you know? <laughs> Imagine if you brought, though, your humor to your team or the people around you at work. What would have happened? Yeah. Well, I, I, I guess mean, I think – go ahead, Vic. I was going to say, I think that's what drew me to the startup world, and I'm sure, Karen, that's... you can attest to this as well. It's just a, it's a lot more – there's less of that kind of classist feeling, and there's yeah. also just more of the – people are friends like outside of work. Like people, we actually hung out together. People like aren't just like they clock in and they go home. Like there's a sense of community in a startup. I think that I found, I could actually tell people I did comedy. Like I didn't tell people I did stand up at at uh, United at all. I was like, nah, I was very scared to like anyone know about my passions like outside of work. Cause I just was like, it's just a job and I'm here to make money and that's it. But once I started working at startups, I was like, Oh, this is like, I can be myself at work. Yeah. I can, I can be a little bit more fluid and, and the humor, I think, came naturally because, like, that's kind of what I'm drawn to. So it was – I think it is a huge thing with startup culture is, like, they try to incorporate it. But it can be done, I think, in the wrong way. But for a, for a, for a really good startup, I think they do it the right way and they try to make it part of, you know, they try to make – because it is, like, a very fast-moving ship and it's a lot of, like, stress. So they have to use humor kind of in the same way, not with the same dire circumstances as, like, cops and military people do, but at the same time, it's a stressful situation, like all the time. So they need to relieve the tension somehow. But, but that, so that's my, that's my point. At, at United, at J.P. Morgan, by the way, guys, uh, assistant producer John Dolder, who helps us record all these, will probably be joining us. So you may see another person pop in here in just a minute. Um, that's my point. So United, J.P. Morgan, the environment, Karen, almost feels like if Vic or I were to try and introduce humor I mean, maybe I was too young I was in my 20s so maybe maybe it was just a, a, an issue around time but it felt to me like I'd be taking a big risk in a negative way like hurting myself if I put myself out there in that way it's almost like the environment did not allow for it or just wasn't conducive for it or actually the environment would not reward me with likability necessarily maybe i'm wrong but did you look into that at all or karen you've worked at some of these bigger companies so you have this experience so oh yeah I mean, I'm a slow death yeah i to totally experience it and that's why i will not go back there but essentially what we're trying to say with our research is we're giving you permission to start to interject humor into the workplace because it is somewhat risky and studies show that if you use humor you are seen as more likable but you may not be seen as competent. So it is a little bit risky there to show that side. Mm. But leaders that show humor are actually rated higher and rated as better leaders when they do use humor. Mm. So it helps when you're in that leadership role to set kind of the tone at the top for the culture and sprinkle it in with your employees. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So you are, you are saying at a leadership level, the, the evidence is really strong really about strong. bringing in that comedy. Yes. Indeed, uh, you know, a junior guy walking in, the analyst, the first year, a second year, a third year, if he just comes in, you know. Uh, <laughs> People just stand up and like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Standing, I'm picturing myself standing on the trading floor trying to do stand up. <laughs> yeah, but if it was on my team at United and I found out that you did, I would love to know that you did comedy. I would want to know that about you. But that's also part of being a good leader is like knowing your people and what makes them. Of tick. course. Yeah, it, yeah. it comes. I think the top down comment is that's like with any change or any cultural shift. I think uh, at United, it just was this. It was very segmented and siloed. So I think there wasn't that kind of overarching, you know, person to be like the oh, let's recognize this person has, you know, other skills, 
Um, it did help me find a girlfriend, but that's a separate. <laughs> that was at work. <laughs> I ended up I ended up dating someone who worked on my floor, and the whole reason was because like her friend at work was like, "Oh, he does stand up. Like he does improv. Like that was like my way in." Is that she kept telling her that I was like different than everyone else there? Yeah, so, I'd be mad if you didn't tell me if you worked for me. <laughs> I would want to yeah. know. But I worked at Pricewaterhouse Cooper's Big Four Consulting Firm. Same thing. They didn't want you to really have anything else going on in your life. When yeah. I first started there within four weeks, they're like, um, they pulled me into a partner's office. They're like, people are complaining about you because there's pictures of you on the internet holding guns. And I'm like, well, fuck, everybody's already talking about me and made some perceptions about me. So, yeah. yeah. And they kind of want you to just fit in this box and <sighs> the robot. And you, you know, when okay. you, they can't talk about being involved in comedy, that's causes like, incongruity in your personal life because you're not being your true authentic self at right. work. And so yep. that causes yeah, like that... psychological distress to a degree. Okay. Mm -hmm. Karen, th this is, this is, you, you really do have to own the fact that this is a super interesting life that you've lived. Uh, so you, so you, this is, so you go to PricewaterhouseCoopers after you spent time with the Chicago police. You, you were a Chicago yes. police officer for 10 years. And during that time yeah. you worked as an undercover prostitute or, or some of that time is that with some of what you did yeah i worked on a gang team i worked as an undercover prostitute undercover narcotics and then worked for intelligence and counterterrorism and then for the superintendent of police which is the chief executive officer top guy. right right of the police department right yeah. who always especially the last decade or two has been getting a ton of shit i imagine yeah well i worked for the first one that came from the outside the department in over 50 years so oh, usually wow. somebody within the ranks moves up Right. I had, of course, the first guy that came from the outside, and he was a fed, so he was embattled from the beginning. <laughs> what, what, what was his name? Jody Weiss. Oh, is it a man or a woman? A man, yeah. Okay, Big gotcha. muscular guy. You may have seen him. Yeah, I, I typically do know a lot of these guys, but that name I don't remember. I, was, I also lived out of the country for a couple of years, maybe around okay. Yeah. But, okay, so, so did you – okay, I, I'm just so fascinated by this idea of being an undercover prostitute. So, like <laughs> – I mean, this is a dumb question, but it's serious too. Like, did you take acting classes? No, no, not at all. I just I got all dirty. I didn't look like this, clearly. I mean, okay. this is like crack hose. This is not like a nice prostitute. This is like crack hose. I was going to say, this is not like a high-end escort. You're not no, like a baby. This is like, <laughs> this is like uh, Armitage and Pulaski Division and Cicero crack hose. <laughs> Shit, that's not far from where I live. Well, what's up, John Dolder? All right, guys, John Dolder joined. Do not be scared. This is normal look, everyone. Do not be scared. This is normal look. Hey. <laughs> hey, what's up? Hello. What's up? How you doing, John? Good. How have you been, Armour? Good, brother, man. Sorry we're not in person here, but that's all good. Are you working, John, or no? Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm still working. You are? Okay. Yeah. All right. We're, well, John, we're just in the middle of a, of a crazy story. Please quickly meet Karen and Vic. Say what's up. Hey, Karen. Hey, Vic. Hello. Um, all right. So, so uh, John, we're, we're in the middle of a story here. Just, just catch up to us. So, right. um, you know, Sanford Meisner uh, says that acting is living truthfully under imaginary circumstances, I guess you don't need acting because they weren't imaginary circumstances in a way. Like you're, you're really with, um, you know, people who are looking for, you know, whatever, prostitutes. Love. Looking for some love. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, okay, so, so, so you'd get dressed up, like this would be like at the police station, you're like, 
in the locker room, like, hmm, what should I, what would a prostitute wear? Is that how you actually work? Or did you, did someone, did you have like, did somebody do your makeup and shit? No, just my partner. I had a female partner. We went out there together, obviously for safety reasons. And we would just kind of dirty ourselves up. I mean, these are people that we had dealt with previously. So we knew kind of what the end user looked like, if you will. <laughs> right, right. But they were obviously different than um, the people, the people you were going into. You never met them, obviously, right? No, 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 of course not. Yeah. All right, so then you go in, so you get dressed up at the station, you jump in an, a different car, obviously, and, yep. then, and uh, then walk to a corner. Walk to a corner, and, and then literally just start trying to sell yourself. Yeah, I mean, it's wow. pretty in those areas what women on the corner are doing typically. Right. And we were, like I said, purposely dirty. I mean, we, I didn't look like this, so. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, there may have been some drinking involved too. So, <laughs> so that we smell like alcohol. And right. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, and it happens pretty fast. Wow. How many, how long did you do that undercover work? Um, I did it throughout my career. So I worked plain clothes. So not in uniform and anytime they needed a decoy, they would pull my partner and I to be decoys. All right, so let's say Vic one day is driving by Division in Pulaski. Why do, why do I have to be the person? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Pulaski, huh? Oh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so let's say Vic walks up one day, or pulls, no, sorry, pulls up one day in his Cadillac, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, he, <laughs> and he's looking for some love. He's like, hey, All baby. Right. Yeah, hey, hey, baby. <laughs> What's your name? Did you have a name like Cinnamon or Cookies or something like that? <laughs> Like a gemstone? No. <laughs> Jade. <laughs> it's called Operation Angel, so. Really? So wait, did you call yourself Angel? I think we just use our regular name. We, I mean, you don't get, it's really not, you don't need to know the name, I guess. So okay, yeah. Yeah, you don't really buy a it's prostitute a quick for the name. So you discuss yeah, you want right. the dollar amount and then it's pretty much over. You guys clearly yeah. don't know marketing because I mean, a man, Vic has choices. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you're going to a prostitute like that, I don't think you're, I think you're, that's it. That's the final stop. I don't think you're doing <laughs> shopping. Yeah, yeah. You're not, you're not price comparing. You're, you're going in like, this is it. You know, <laughs> we would do it in the winter and it'd be, we'd be freezing our asses off. So we shut up $5. the winter. $5. And they'd be like, all right. Yeah. Yeah. No, really? Yeah. Okay, so then do you guys jump in <laughs> you guys jump in Vic's Cadillac at this point? At what point no. do you want to arrest the guy? No, you, as soon as the transaction is made, you do the takedown signal, whatever that might be, and then the person and their vehicle are taken down. Okay, so other people from the outside come in and take take care of yeah. shit. Yeah. Damn. Yo, this is movie kind of shit. Am I wrong, guys? It's crazy. Yeah. I just I just yeah. I just watched Tiger King last night for the first time. I'm not going to lie. I'm more entertained right now than, than I was last night. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen the stupid Tiger King. I want to see this. Oh, you got to see it. It's good. It's good? Okay. <laughs> so, okay. So, uh, at some point, did you, like, did, did the prostitute uh, consumers figure mm -hmm. out you and your partner were doing this? Or were you guys able to successfully stay undercover the whole time? No, they they don't know. And so when they would get taken down, we would run off like, ah, we're, oh, you know, right, right. because you don't want to go from a place of undercover to enforcement. That's very dangerous. Very, yeah. So we would just stay undercover the entire time. Plus, we want to keep the round robin of people coming throughout the night. Right, right, right. Damn. And people are watching, so. 
am I am I the only one super fascinated by this, or Vic and John, is this interesting to you guys at all? No, this no, is pretty saying, interesting. It, it's just it's crazy. There's another operation called Operation Angelo. So we would have male undercovers, and I had a male partner at the time, and we would go to the bird sanctuary at Diversity Harbor, and yeah. my partner would go in there undercover because that's where a lot of solicitation happens for male on male. And he would always say that that was like the scariest thing he's ever done in his whole career was going to the birds yeah. undercover. <laughs> That's kind of funny that the, the bird sanctuaries where the men were like, let's do it here. Let's go to the bird sanctuary. Yeah. <laughs> he would come out and be like all skittish. Like they were coming out of the bushes with like tissues and motion. And <laughs> uh, I'm picturing a mating call. I'm picturing a mating call of like, caca, caca. <laughs> yeah, so be careful when you go to the bird sanctuary. I'll make sure I keep that in mind next time. I'm there. <laughs> that's right, gonna so. be my little fact. I'm gonna tell all the kids that are there. I'm like, hey, you know, there's like male prostitutes get solicited here when I'm like just there hanging out. That's oh, gonna be one of my one. points about the city when I have family visiting. Yeah, <laughs> a good little. Yeah, let's go to the bird sanctuary. John, there's this big, you know, guy, tough guy, and he would come out of there so scared. Oh man, hell yeah, hell yeah. Funny. Um, all right, so so uh, now were you? I mean, so were you scared, Karen? Like, at what level did you feel like you were in danger or not? That's a great question. So normal police work, I did not feel scared. Like, I like chasing people. I like car chases. I like putting myself in danger. But the undercover is different because you don't have a radio. You at the time we were not allowed to have undercover weapons. So I couldn't have like a small 380 or a knife or anything on me. That was against policy for the department. So you're really out there vulnerable. So that was a different feeling. You're really out there what? You're out there vulnerable. Vulnerable, yeah. So that's a yeah. different feeling than normal police work. Not that the uniform and the radio and all of that does anything, but it's just a very different feeling. So it that to me was the scariest work that I did on the job. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, uh, and okay, and... Uh, Sorry, someone is ringing the back door at the restaurant. I wish they, I guess they don't have a key. Guys, continue on, please. I'm going to open the door for the cook that's coming. Hang on a second. Um, how did you make, Karen, how did you make the pivot? Like, like, how did you decide what you wanted to do after the police work? Like, did it just naturally, you kind of touched on a little bit, but I mean, yeah. going from, you know, it sounds like you, did you work at Motorola right after? What was the first kind of corporate gig that you had? Yeah, Motorola was the first corporate gig, and that's a great question. I get that question all the time, and I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up, so in five years, I'm going to be yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll try comedy by then. Um, yeah, but, you should. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, after I got dumped from the superintendent's office and sent back to patrol in midnight and just kind of a pariah on the job because I worked for the superintendent that nobody liked, I was kind of like, oh. Maybe I should go do something different. I did get my master's degree along the way. And so I looked for a job in the private sector, which was difficult because being the police was like my existence. It was who I was. So it was very difficult to leave that behind and then go pursue something totally different. So yeah. I thought it was great because their core customer is public safety and law enforcement. And I knew that very well. And so I went into the organization being one of the only people who has law enforcement experience there in a 10,000 person organization. So it served me really, really well there. Nice, that's awesome. And, and so, so here's my question, right? You're talking about PricewaterhouseCoopers, I assume? Transition from CPD to Motorola. 
Oh, Motorola. So is that where people then saw pictures of you on the internet with guns? That was at PwC. At Motorola, it was cool. Like people were like, yeah, that's awesome. Like we could use this for product development. <laughs> yeah. At PwC, it was like, oh my God, she's <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> wow. Look at that. Just, we, just saw, we just saw corporate culture at two different I, know. I was like, you know what? I'm full of tattoos, too. Oh, my God. <laughs> Run. Hide your children. Hide your wife. <laughs> that is, yeah, you, I mean, you, you're not, I'm not going to lie, Karen. You're a fucking badass. That's just. <laughs> I'm not anymore. I'm old. But, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I find different ways to be a badass. Um, so, okay. So, so. Yeah, at PW, so so why do you think at Motorola they embraced it more and found it cool versus well, the their core customers public safety and so they're developing products specifically for for law enforcement and smartly they oh. want to understand their end user better. Got it. So got it. Okay, so that like, makes sense. I had a training company while I was on the police department, and we brought the exact same training, active shooter training, that we did for law enforcement to Motorola engineers and marketers and leadership, and they went through it just like a law enforcement officer would. And it was super brave and super awesome that they let us do that. I mean, they would come in, get a little bit of lecture on like what to do in a situation, get a simunition weapon that fires just like a real gun, and we'd put them through scenarios. This is, wait, wait, this is at the corporation, you went through, a, 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 you mimicked a scenario where if an active shooter walked into Motorola's building or Motorola's offices, what everyone, how everyone would respond? Yes. So we did all types of scenarios, not necessarily just coming into Motorola, but we would queue up all different types of scenarios. We would, we had a shoot house. So a building that was had movable walls and we could set up any sort of environment that we want. And then we would put them through that training and what, then they what? had to make decisions, shoot, don't shoot. What do you do in this situation? How do you use a radio in this situation? And we'd have them do like jumping jacks beforehand so that like your heart rate is up. Right. It's very different under stress. I mean, think if you were in a car accident and you're taking out your phone to dial 911, like you can't even move your fingers. Right. So we're trying to get them to simulate that stress to inoculate them against the stress in a real situation. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like taking a vaccine in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that's all I mean, that's on my mind with, with Corona. For the Motorola's to go through it and very brave of them to do that. Right. So, wait, by the way, uh, Vic and Karen, is this, a, and maybe even John, I don't know, is this, a, I haven't been in the corporate world in over a de or almost a decade, is active shooter exercises or training something in the corporate world, is that a thing right now in the corporate world? Do people go through this? I mean, yeah, I can do some. Yeah, I've done some. I mean, it's, now it's like a real thing. People are, like, it's an actual threat. Um, usually they do it. Like at the bigger companies, they just do like a video or something. Like that's kind of cool that you actually yeah. got through it. Um, same. Yeah, the video was the video was really funny. It was like a bad movie. It was, yeah, yeah. It, was, yeah. <laughs> it was like this guy just walks in with a shotgun and shoots the receptionist in the face, and it was like oh, really dude. graphic. And we're like, whoa, this is like this is crazy. Like, this, yeah. what are you showing us? But I was, it was like really violent for no reason, but then didn't help us in any way. And then we were just like. <laughs> it was like a very entertaining but for the wrong reason. Hey, yeah. yeah. John, John at UPS, you had the same thing? Uh, not at UPS, but when I worked a seasonal job at Gap, they made me watch a, a video about what to do for an active shooter. And uh, this guy was in, uh, he was in like all black and then had like clearly like a Nerf gun with the orange tip spray painted black. <laughs> and 
and the, when they when he started like go when he busted into the office like everyone is like you know you're supposed to run away or something like everyone did this like really scooby doo kind of run away from the shooter and then for no reason uh like in the middle of the video they did a little cut scene to his shoe and his shoe was a new balance and if you don't know about gap they own new balance so i was like that's good product placement <laughs> oh wow there <laughs> Product placed in the shooter video. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was pretty good. So, okay, wait. So, but and Motorola, it sounds like you all went through something total, or you put them through something totally different. Is that right, Ken? Yeah, we put them through the same training that law enforcement would go through. So it's a wow. day-long, hour-long training at a shoot house with simunition weapons, real, real, as real scenarios as you could possibly get where they have to make decisions, act in these stressful situations. Now, now, as part of all this, at some point, was is is Motorola or was Motorola provided with weapons in case there's an active shooter? Like, does does a manager or someone have access to a weapon on site? Oh, I see where you go. So we were doing it for education purposes because we brought in folks that were working on products for law enforcement. So how can you do sign a product? For law enforcement if you've never like walked a day in the life of their shoes so ours was more for education i see what you're saying so proactive for security for a company so when i was at pwc we actually sold this type of service to companies it was a tough sell though unless an incident happened companies just are not going to spend money on active shooter preparation yeah which is terrible I, I guess they need to see the threat. I guess they would see the need to see the threat more before they start hiring for this, which is unfortunate. Yeah, unless there was an incident, then we'd get a bunch of calls, and then it would kind of die down, and then another mm. incident happens, and then it kind of dies down. Damn. Okay, so let's keep going on the Ferris wheel of Karen Bartuch's life. No, I feel bad. At, uh, okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. We're, 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 we're trying to... You're, this we're is way they, more interesting than a comedian's life. This is like... Crazy yeah, shit, we're, we're as comedians, we're here to have fun with your stories. This is amazing. Oh, we would record it and play it back and absolutely make fun of everybody through their scenarios for sure. <laughs> that was part <laughs> of the training. Yeah, that does sound <laughs> all the humiliation. Okay, so uh, so then at some point you decide to actually become a doctor, like literally get a PhD in business, and 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 there you did a bunch of research, which I found fascinating. Uh, which was the humor research. Is that right? So you went to DePaul to get a, a PhD in business administration? I did, yeah, a doctorate. So I was at Motorola, worked there almost five years. Is, a, do is a, a doctorate is a PhD, just to make sure, right? Well, PhD is slightly different. So oh. it is a different accreditation. So it's still a doctor, but the doctorate has a different accreditation than the PhD. Got it. Still went through the same rigorous coursework, dissertation, et cetera. It's just right. different. Accreditation that quite honestly, I don't understand. <laughs> so, and um, clearly, that, neither do I. Yeah, no, yeah. I guess a doctor is more business in Europe, uh, is more popular in Europe mm. and meant more for people that are working in roles versus going in to be a true academic, which would be that PhD route. Got it, got it. Yeah, so I was at Motorola almost five years, moved up very quickly there. So, went from individual contributor to manager to manager of managers. And had to kind of learn on the fly because the things I learned on the police department didn't necessarily always translate to the private sector. So I like dove into leadership and how to influence people and all of that stuff and um, started realizing like there's a better way to solve problems that are going on in the corporate world. For instance, every year we would like 
look at sales compensation and be like, why the fuck aren't the sales guys selling the thing that we're trying to get them to sell the new thing, even though we're giving them, you know, five times more incentive, more money. Like why aren't they selling it? And so I started finding academic research and seeing all this other great body of work that's out there that could help you be smarter in business. And then I watched Amy Cuddy's TEDx around power posing. If you guys Yeah, seen I've that. seen that. Yeah. And I was like, uh, basically body language and making it bigger, yeah. right? Yeah. And I was like, holy crap, that's exactly what I want to do. I like studying people and like behavior and understanding like, like if I play my, if I do rock, paper, scissors with my husband, if I do it once, I know exactly what he's going to do next. I could like predict what he's going to do next, (laughs) which is bad for him, I guess. But I like being able to understand people and their behavior and you know, how they're going to operate and why they're going to operate. And that's what the doctorate allowed me to be able to do. I mean, it sounds like it's not just business administration, but really, I mean, and this is what economics is, I think, psychology. It's psychology, yeah. And that's what my undergrad is in, is psychology. Makes sense. Okay. All right. So, so uh, you get your doctorate there, and, and that's where you start. So, so then what brought you on to doing humor research? Yeah, so we needed it. So we started out doing group projects, like every good, you know, school program does. And so we needed a topic that all, all of us in the group liked. And, you know, one person was in sales, the other guy was in HR, I was in marketing. So I was like, what are we all going to care about? And so we landed on humor largely because when I was at Motorola, the CEO, who's still the CEO, Greg Brown, he was a great orator. He would get up and he's one of the best public speakers I've ever seen. And he always used humor when he was talking. And while I was there, we went through a really tough time financially with the company. And he would get up and be like, you know, use humor and say, oh, you guys are all not getting your bonuses. But the way he would do it was like so, we would be okay with it because he would use humor and make us feel good about it, even though like the company was sucking financially. Mm. So I was like, that's kind of an interesting thing to study the use of humor. And so we started looking into it more and found out there is actually a pretty big body of research already done on humor. And so then we started to look at it in our own slice of that. Mm. And, and so, okay. So this is super intriguing to me. What did, what did you guys find? Yeah, so positive humor, uh, you know, humor that's not negative in any way or putting anybody down, actually has a ton of great benefits in the workplace. So employees are more engaged. They have higher job satisfaction. They're more creative at work. They're better to bounce back from negative events. They're more resilient. They have better team cohesion. So there's a ton of positive benefits to humor in the workplace. And you guys alluded to it in your roles in corporate America where it's just kind of a drone and it's terrible and you die slowly on the inside. And so humor helps with that in the workplace. All right, so so I, here, Vic, John. Yeah. And I think Vic, you've got the most experience out of all of us. I think you've been doing comedy longer than all of us maybe, but one of the most important things I understand humor to be is you gotta have a target you got to be targeting someone that, or something like the president or whatever, or rich people or whatever. And then you got to be hostile towards them. And it's all done in jest and playful. But do, do you think, did, did any of that, first of all, Vic, John, am I, am I way off on that? Don't you think that's some really fundamental elements of comedy? No, some of the best jokes are just ripping on people if you're like <laughs> hanging out. Right? So hostility yeah. and targeting. Okay. Yeah, Vic, exactly. Am I way off? No, I think I think that's definitely a large like roast humor is a huge part of comedy. Like being like a rant comic like Bill Burr, where you're taking down, 
you know, like either people or an institution right. and you're just going off on that. Like that's definitely having a target. But then there's also humor that's like introspective where it's like, I'm talking about myself. Self-deprecating. Like self-deprecating. There's, there's different types. I think there's, it's a, it's a big facet of humor. Um, but if you're not good at it, it can come across mean. Right. <laughs> so you need to do it in a way, um, kind of similar to delivering negative information. Like you're not getting your bonuses. If you're doing that in a way that's like very just matter of fact, you come across as an asshole. Right. But if you do it with humor, you can come across like, oh, this is actually okay. Like we're going to be fine, you know, which is, yeah. I think that's the same thing with joke writing, like doing it in a way where it's like, it's mean, but it's like, oh, all right, well, he kind of justified it somehow. So we feel okay. But, but even, even, even with like self-deprecating, it seems to me like it's really hard in comedy to get around the, like self-deprecating. You're still targeting someone. It's yourself. And you're definitely being hostile towards yourself. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like Karen, like, like maybe Greg Brown is an example you can use. Or maybe you, maybe you came across this in your research. Like how, how would one in the world of the corp, you know, corporate world, um, you know, uh, manage that? Like I think of even, you know, Louis C.K., right? He, his target was often his kids or his four-year-old daughter or whatever. Like he would, he would target the craziest things and somehow make it funny. So I do think there's yeah. this element of like slate of hand, if you will, with comedy where, like Vic was saying, like you're, you're, you're going after someone or something or roasting, but you're doing it in a way where it's acceptable. Is, is that kind of like, was, did you go into that at all when you were researching yeah. Yeah, by the way, studying humor for one year makes it not fun. <laughs> it sounds very, very yeah. young, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, and so I, I preface it because there is actually theory around humor. So it's called benign violation theory. So you take something benign and then you violate it. And that is positive humor. And you want to punch up, not punch down. Like it wouldn't yeah. make sense to go violate a homeless person because they're kind of like lower on the status so you want to punch up so that's right. why politicians and those folks seem to be better targets but i i mean i love dave Chappelle and he goes after everybody so right right <laughs> in the workplace a safe thing that we came up with which we had to alter a little bit is that i would say if you wouldn't say it in front of your mother then don't say it at work but then people uh. are like you don't know my mom <laughs> so then that's why i always make jokes about fucking my dad like yeah right. <laughs> so then we had a, we're like okay good point so then we had to change it to if you wouldn't say it in front of a kindergartner don't say it at work ah uh, right. okay that's good but i think for what you guys do actually taking risk is better right taking right that's risk. Yeah. yeah but again but again audiences are fickle right like not are not fickle like they're, I feel like, and you guys again, tell me your opinions, but you know, you'll know right away if you haven't struck the right chord with who you're targeting and how hostile you're being towards them. And, and because your audience will tell you right away, like, Ooh, that didn't feel good. You know? Yeah. So I think the audience can be just like the corporate crowd. Um, you can take risks. It, it just has to be, yeah, it has to be palatable, you know? So, yeah. so you're saying benign bad joke wrote. Say that, say that again. <laughs> I would go more dad joke route. Yeah, yeah right, <laughs> right. In the corporate world, right, right. So benign Did violation. What was benign that? violation theory, yeah. What, so what's an example of a violation? What? What's an example of a violation? Well, like we have this uh, meme, like memes are a good example. And like we picked vegans because we thought, okay, vegans, like everybody can, it's kind of safe to poke fun at vegans. Although you can, there is a way that you could take it too far. And so benign just meaning like it's kind of a safer topic like you're not going to go in and make jokes about like abortion or religion mm -hmm. 
in the workplace. So something more benign, like you could make fun of somebody's lunch or something versus picking something really serious to violate. Okay, there was this dude who used to always eat tuna out of a can <laughs> at work at J.P. Morgan, and it just drive me bananas. Bananas. The guy would get a plastic fork, bust open the can of tuna, and just walk around the floor and just like. An I'm like, here, yeah. What's that? It's Harry's a, a can character. opener. <laughs> what would you say, John? Who carries a can opener with them? <laughs> a guy who eats tuna on the floor. <laughs> oh. yeah, Do so you I ever thought... look at, uh, in your research, Karen, I think it's interesting about this whole thing of like, yeah, punching up and punching down. And like you said, you cited Chappelle, like he gets away with it. And it's like funny to everybody for most, for the most part. Right. I think there's also this element and this is what I've noticed doing comedy. It's like, it's like a trust thing. So if the audience trusts you, mm. you know, you can get away with more shit. Like, and I think as you get more famous and more well-known, you're catering mm. to your audience. So you can then say something, you don't need to, you don't need to give as much like of a, of a basically like, you don't need to build them up and be like, I'm this great guy, but then I'm going to shit on this. Like you can just start shitting on something immediately. Cause that's what the audience expects then. So I wonder if in the corporate place, like how the parallel is, is like, if you're a CEO, you already have trust. So you're okay to make these kind of jokes and make these kind of things. And you can make light of a serious situation. And it's the same thing as being a comedian. Like you have to establish that trust first with the audience. Like in a 20 minute set, your first five minutes is like building that rapport. And then once you have the rapport, then you can start like shitting on things. But if you were to start and shit on things immediately, people are not going to like you. And I think I found that over time, like I can get away with crazy stuff if I've earned their trust earlier on in the set. Mm. Yeah. And by the way, you guys are the ones that do the awesome. I do not write jokes. I'm not a comedian by any means. So you guys are out there doing the awesome stuff. So. I, I wonder, Karen, if Greg, is it Greg Brown? Is he the CEO of Motorola? Yeah, Greg Brown. So I wonder if he, over time, won Motorola staff, you know, won their trust. Like they just kind of knew the type of guy he was. And so he, like you said, Vic, Dave has kind of earned the trust. He can just, he can go right into it and they're going to, audiences are going to trust that he's coming from a good place when he cracks the jokes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's had his fair share of haters as well, but absolutely. He was in that role for quite a while before he was able to get up and do that. And he did yeah. it. And it doesn't mean like a joke. It could be self-deprecating humor. It could just be the way he delivers. Humor in general. Yeah. However he's yeah. using it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think it's like, oh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think it's also like, um, you know, being, it's also where you are. It, this is more for stand up, but like where you are in the show makes a difference. Like if you're the headliner, like you already have, the audience has this preconceived notion that you know what you're doing because you're the headliner. So when you go on stage, like if you're hosting conversely, you, you gotta get a laugh in the first like 15 seconds. If you don't, they're going to tune out and they're going to be like, this person sucks at comedy. Mm -hmm. Like they're the first person. They're not going to be good. They're going to be the worst person first. Like there's all these preconceived notions. But if you're the headliner, like I've headline shows and like, I don't need to, I can just bullshit for a minute without even doing a joke. And it's like, mm -hmm. it's killing. It's already doing better than like a prepared joke because they're like, oh, this headliner, like he comes in and just acts like he knows what he's doing. And it's like this weird, like, it's almost, it's frustrating as a comic because you're like, I'm the same guy that just hosted the show yesterday, but mm -hmm. now I'm out here just doing no work at all and getting bigger reactions. Wow. So it's like, I wonder if, I think it is all about that trust and that it's also about how audiences perceive you or how your yeah. company probably perceives you, how your yeah. employees perceive you. 
Yeah, there's the, the status like, piece. In the yeah. workplace, the humor, you could also be a receiver of humor. You don't have to be the one delivering the humor to engage in humor. So you can, because a lot of people are like, oh, I'm not funny, I can't be funny. So, but if you engage in the humor, that's still, you know, being part of your workplace. Yeah. So there, it's a two-way street. And also, I'm, one thing you're saying struck a nerve. So we also did some research on gender. So, and there's also previous research on gender. So in one study, they took the same cartoon, same uh, line below it, had attributed it to a male author and then attributed it to a female author. Whoa. Attributed to the male author, it was rated funnier than it was to the female. Wow, that's, that's so frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah. like headliner I mean, versus guy hosting yes. show, it's, yeah, I'm not surprised by that at all. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I, Amr, and, and I don't know, I don't know what kind of comedy you do, um, but John, but it's the same thing in our world. I mean, it's, it's just uh, a lot of people had this perception. It's a perception. It's like, yeah, I, I don't think this, this woman is going to be as funny as this person. And it's like, I mean, if you're a woman doing comedy, like you're going to be, you have to be funny almost to stand out because it's like so much more difficult. Like there probably, there's a lot more there's so many mediocre men doing comedy that the women, the few women that are doing comedy are like significantly better, but it's just that much harder to, for them to, they have to be that much funnier, I think, to keep it going, which is very, very frustrating, I think. Ah, oh, that sounds like male privilege at its worst. Yeah, it's, it's bad. I mean, I, I book shows too, so it's also like something I keep in mind too, like balancing a lineup, making sure, because then it's like, you know, you don't want to book all dudes or you don't want to book all one race just because the show is going to be worse, like diversity. And, and that's with corporate things too, like diversity in teams has been shown to be more productive. Like I, that's some of the work I was doing is hiring more diverse folks just because it makes for a better team, makes for better ideas. And um, it's hard though, sometimes at the startup level, like very homogenous groups of people and the referral pool is very small. So it's like, how do I get someone in here that's like, you know, different, but without alienating them, because then they come in, they're like the one token brown dude in the office. Like, that's not what you want to yeah. do either. So it's a weird, it's a weird balance. It's the inclusion piece too. You can't just bring them in and check the box. You also have to let their ideas be heard. Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, so, okay. So now here we are, right? We're recording this on Wednesday, April 1st. All right. So, we're, we're smack dab in the middle of the pa pandemic, probably not even at its worst. Um, and I feel like the world is for the most part still running around like a chicken with his head cut off. Um, and this is kind of like what you, what you do, Karen, right? Like you're, you're saying that humor right now is actually the best antidote to all the stress and tension, fears and anxieties that everyone is probably sitting with, you know what I mean? Like I, myself included, my, my, my income streams have, are all at threatened and I'm all worried about them and you know, things are more tense at home and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so basically your research would say, this is the opportune, like the best time to be using humor and comedy, whether it's in the corporate, let's just talk about the business world, right? So, um, have you thought about this much amidst all this pandemic? Are you guys doing it more with your own corporation at Sip Science? Yeah, I mean, Sip Science has had it from the beginning for sure. But I would say on the home front, like my husband's a sergeant on the police department, so he's still going to work every day and mm. sucks. And so we are using humor as a coping me mechanism for sure for us. And the reason it works is because when you use humor, you're kind of separating yourself 
from reality, which I don't know if long-term that's necessarily good or not, but it helps as a coping mechanism. And I'm sure all of you guys got the meme with wood that went around. Did you guys see this, the black eye? No. Everybody oh, yes, yes. That's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which and one? Then, with wood? Yeah, you'll have to look it up. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't describe that properly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> save for this podcast. But I mean, that's like an example of everybody using humor to kind of cope with a really fucked up situation. Mm. Yeah. Did you find out, wait, uh, update on that meme, that guy's dead now. Did you know that? Yeah, 2016. I know. Yeah. What a what a sad story to the terrifying meme. But uh, <laughs> I was going to say it made it funnier. You think it made it funnier because it's like yeah, yeah. justice, like he's dead now. Well, we first got it because somebody said my husband, oh, Trump tested positive for coronavirus. I'm like, what? So we clicked on it and it was that guy's picture. And we're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I like yeah. the one where it's like, if you know who this guy is, you have some real fucked up friends. <laughs> yeah, no, that's funny. I know that my, my friend group has been sharing that meme since like 28, 2008. Like we've been <laughs> just sharing that. that thing's been in heavy use. Uh, I think going back to the humor and coping thing, I think even at the level, like an individual level, people use it to cope. I mean, I think people laugh at themselves. I think people, um, you know, I, I, for comics specifically too, like a lot of people do comedy because it's cathartic and like they want, they mm. laugh, but they also get, they get utility out of that. They make other people laugh. They feel better. It's like, like you said, comedy is a two way street. And it's like, I think that, that's why so many comics keep going despite it being so bad is because they, that's like the one coping mechanism that they have. And um, that's why a lot of people are really struggling right now because they don't have that. That's like their one outlet and they don't have like, they don't necessarily have a nine to five. They don't have a job. So they're like really feeling that anxiety and depression start to creep back in that they must've been battling through, you know, and it's like, and those are the people that I'm like worried about during this is people that have no outlet, have no resources. It's like, those are the people that are going to be, really affected negatively after all this not just financially but like mentally so i, I told you guys i haven't taped the podcast in uh, a few weeks since it's all started and um for me i didn't start doing comedy till well i mean so so this wonderful friend i have azar usman is a comedian and he would tour and you know i was going through a divorce and the financial crisis in 2008 2009 and i was kind of like i was at jp morgan uh on the trading side I kind of was in fixed income. I had a front row seat to the whole 2008 financial theater. You know what I mean? And it was really stressful. Um, I just, every day I'd walk in, I'm like, okay, I'm just waiting for them to fire me. Or Plus, I kind of knew the economy was, was literally brought to its knees. So I was like, oh, shit. Like, this could be really, really bad for, like, everyone, you know? So it was really stressful on me. I was kind of young in my 20s. And on top of it all, I was going through a divorce. I was previously married. Um, so... In, in that scenario, I literally would just tag along with Azhar, my friend, and go to his shows and just tour with him and just laugh my ass off as much as I could because it was literally the only thing that was, was helping me get through it all. So hearing you say all that resonates. And so in the last three weeks, by not taping a podcast, not getting up on stage, not doing any improv, nothing, I found myself in the last week like literally, uh, uh, I, there was a day where I'm like, why am I so sad and angry and anxious? And uh, I had a moment, Karen, where things weren't that realistically bad, but I was struggling to dial on my phone. I'm like, okay, I need to take a breath. I stopped, I prayed, I meditated. And I was like, you know what? I think it's because I haven't done any comedy or taped any podcasts. I think that I need to just 
I think, I think that's just a, a reality of how I'm built or who I am is, is it's an opportunity for me to let it all hang out in a way, you know, is, is getting on stage or talking to people and trying to make light of a situation. Um, so that totally resonates with me personally, just in the past few weeks and, and not taping anything or not doing anything. So, you know, um, I mean, and like you're saying, you want that feedback from the crowd, but it's, it's just about positive energy too. I mean, think about it when people are super negative or you've got that friend who's always like victim, woe is me. Who the hell wants to be around that? So in this time you want to be around that good, positive energy. At least that's sort of the metaphysical things that I believe in. Yeah, no, that resonates for me too. That, that, that was my experience. And so, yeah, I think, I think Vic, you're right. I think that, um, you know, anyone who is used to doing comedy or using that as a tool for themselves um, is, is, you know, probably or potentially suffering because they're not, I know, I know I, I've been, you know, I, I am. Yeah. It's, uh, it's funny. Cause like you mentioned energy and like that whole thing. Like I, I, when I started, before I started doing comedy, like I was like a finance numbers person. So like all this, all these like kind of, uh, intangible things that happen with uh, humor, I was kind of, uh, unaware to them and also just, didn't really believe in them. I didn't put any faith in them, but then I realized like the more, again, the more I do comedy, the like, I feel like the less I, I, it's so important how, how important like relationships are and humor is in everything. Like that is like what ties us all together. It's not like, it's not necessarily data. It's just like these intangible things like that can make or change like my opinion of someone. It's like, if their energy is good, if I feel like a positive vibe when I come in the room, and like, if you talked to me five years ago, I'd be like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Like that's stupid. Like it's, it's just so interesting how, it is really all about at the micro level. It's about like energy and like making someone feel comfortable and then you can do so much more, but mm -hmm. you don't, re you think it's like very complicated. There's all these attributes. It's really simple. Actually. I think like human interaction. Um, that's why this is such an interesting time because you're seeing a lot of good examples of it where people are like reaching out and doing stuff. So I think some of the positives of this are people are actually relying on each other a lot more um, just in like a, for like a support system. Um, and, and it's interesting seeing people like connect again for the first time in a long time. There's studies, medical studies, where people were terminally ill, but they used humor and kept up a positive outlook yep. and they actually ended up healing themselves through it. Yeah. So. Crazy. It's, uh, Crazy. Yeah. So, okay. So that's, go ahead. That's my long was, justification to why I should be allowed to say dick jokes. That's, that's how it basically <laughs> <laughs> Don't hold it in. It's not good. Yeah. <laughs> I think also the more you lean into your authentic true self, the better off things are and the more opportunity there is. That was the one yeah. thing I learned later on in my career. Like I always felt like I had to talk a certain way. And then I was like, fuck it. I'm going to be me. Love me or hate me. And then the more I was me, the more people I think like that or appreciated that and then more opportunities came my way it's when you have that like incongruity of like who you really are and what you're doing that causes problems people can kind of see through that oh yeah absolutely yeah that's been my experience as well in life i mean i, I definitely kept everything under wraps of who i really was i felt like yeah uh, at jp morgan and totally. uh, and i had to let that go in order to um in order to i don't know just be more at peace with myself and sleep at night totally yeah yes yeah, PwC was one of the worst places I ever worked. <laughs> Two years. Yeah, I left there. I like burned my black suits. I'm like, I'm never wearing a black pants. <laughs> okay, so 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 um so then you're now a professor at DePaul and working at Sip Science, right? So yep. so um, I, I guess 
using using this at sip science and you know uh i guess let me think i, I i'm i'm just uh, to extend the the thought we're having right now around using humor to kind of like move things forward positive energy to move things forward and to get through quote unquote get through things i mean from what i'm understanding you know this pandemic could be a longer term thing like we we you know we may not get a vaccine till next year so on and so forth um we we may have social distancing happen for the next month or so and then we can go back to work briefly maybe at like half staff is what i'm reading and learning and then you know when fall comes back we may have to go back to social distancing and it could be this kind of like accordion um reality for up to 18 months is what i've been learning studying and reading so like at some level i wonder like how, how almost like what's the end game and maybe i'm getting too ahead of myself but maybe maybe there is no end game in a sense maybe it's like continuing to work off of each other and 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 each person kind of takes the baton and runs that that race you know whoever whoever has that kind of positive energy that day to bring it to the company or to the family or whatever you know that's kind of what i'm starting to envision as i think about holy shit we could be in this for the long haul you know i don't know does that make you does that bring up anything for for any of you guys especially you Karen when, who's who's kind of studied what humor can do well, I think innovation is so critical right now. And so the humor leads to creativity, creativity leads to innovation. And I think that's so, so, so important. And the humor helps people be open to new ideas. So new ideas are often rejected at first pass. And so I think this is a time where we need some creativity and new ideas. And so the humor can certainly help with that on the innovation side. Mm. And, and that's what you teach is, is creativity, innovation at DePaul? Yes. So I have a graduate class right now, creativity, innovation, and design thinking in business. And I bring in comedians from Second City to do an improv class because I'll have like a finance person and a compliance person and a lawyer and a marketing person, and they've never experienced anything like improv in their lives. And so that's part of the creative journey is being open to new ideas, building upon the ideas of others, not rejecting ridiculous ideas. Are you currently in, is class in session like this term for you? It is, yeah. So in, within two weeks, I had to convert everything from in-person to online. And, all right, are you at all tweaking any of your materials, teaching materials, to reflect the pandemic, or do they just basically apply perfectly to what? Oh, gosh, no. I mean, so we have an ongoing open idea journal around coronavirus, but my class, I mean, I pride myself on making it a really fun, interactive, edutaining class. Mm. And so to make that into an online format Ooh. is really difficult. Because I want the students to have the same experience. I want them to learn the same things, and I want them to, like, experience even hands-on the same types of things that they would in class. And so I had to transition everything from how it was before to online. But we are going to do an online improv class, so I'm kind of excited about that to see. Whoa, that. that'll be <laughs> Yeah. Okay. But now what about like, you know, yeah, I guess, I guess like what you teach them, the curriculum that what you used previously can mostly be used now, obviously it needs to be, um, a different mode. Yeah. Retrofitted for zoom or the internet. Right. But, but the contents of the books you're using, all the textbooks and all that stuff is all the same. The ideas are all the same. Cause I mean, what you said earlier was here, th this is the point I'm trying to get at. Why do you believe creativity and innovation 
are going to be more valued given the, the pandemic and the situation we're in. Let's, let's assume it's an 18 month thing where we're social distancing um, um, in an accordion style. Why would creativity and innovation be more valued than other you know, types of business skills? Yeah, I'll say a couple things about that. Well, first, what was possible two months ago is probably now possible this time around. So things have totally flipped on its head as far as what's possible and what's not possible. And then even before the crisis occurred, the World Economic Forum put creativity as the number three sought after skill by leaders within companies mm. because of robotics and automation and machine learning and AI. All of those rote tasks that people can do, even math to some degree is less sought after than the creative and critical thinking skills. So I think those skills are gonna be really, really important. And then with everything that's going on, obviously nothing's gonna be the same. Vic spoke to it on how stand-up, maybe there's a, some disruption there around stand-up being online from now on. I mean, even education, I could see a lot of colleges and universities going to more online. It's, it's a little more efficient, it's a little more economical. Um, and you know, there were people that were hanging on to that and now we all were forced to do it in a short amount of time. And so I don't know that everybody's gonna go back to the way it was before. Do you remember by chance what number one and number two were according to the World Economic Forum before creating? Well, critical thinking and ah, I could look it up. It's World Economic Forum though and it was the top sought after skills for 2020 and creativity was number three. And then wow. I think five or 10 years ago, creativity was number 10. So it's, wow. it's wow, that's fascinating. Okay, yeah. yeah, I would exactly when you said math or math skills or quantitative was no longer top, you know, whatever that that I mean, I guess I'm not surprised by that, but a part of me is surprised by that. Yeah, I mean, because it's something that can I don't want to say be easily taught, but it's the same every time, to some degree, right. you know, you're learning the formulas, the algorithms, the process. Creativity is totally different. Kind of anything goes. I mean, if you look at Google, they have a patent for human flypaper, where if an autonomous vehicle is driving and it strikes a pedestrian, it cracks like an eggshell and a person sticks to it so they don't go flying off the vehicle. Totally wait, wait, wait. What cracks like an eggshell? The car? The coating that's on the vehicle, the flypaper that Google has a patent for. I mean, oh, it's really? totally a ridiculous idea. Wow. But in five years, it may not be so ridiculous. Can, can you just explain it one more time? So an autonomous yeah. vehicle is driving and it hits a pedestrian? Yeah, so Google, it's called, it's human flypaper. It's a uh -huh. coating that goes on the hood of a vehicle. Mm -hmm. And if it's a vehicle's driving and strikes a pedestrian, instead of the pedestrian going flying, the pedestrian sticks to the hood of the vehicle. It cracks like an eggshell and the pedestrian sticks to the hood of the vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds totally ridiculous. You almost need somebody with your skills to come up with something that ridiculous that... Yeah, but like you said, that's like five years down the road. That could be everyone's driving autonomous. Yeah, or everyone, it might not be so yeah. You're like, yeah, let no. me get some of that flypaper. Yeah. Fly we thought memes are good now. They're about to get way better with this human flypaper. <laughs> yeah, or think of like products like the Snuggie. You know, it's ridiculous, but it probably right. makes millions of dollars. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. You just got to have, and going back to what you were saying about like the difference, it's like a soft skill versus like a hard skill like right. creativity is not something that you can take a class on like it just develops as, as you and if you're allowed to be creative I think it's like you can probably have a better um, generation amount of it but there's so many companies that are realizing like 
oh, we got no one creative on our team. Like they need these type of people. And then more and more of them are pushing for roles like that. I mean, that's what at startups, that's, they don't necessarily hire like your background doesn't need to be an exact fit, but they hire people with like aptitude and kind of creativity to kind of get there. Cause they know that the utility, that person can learn the job, but the creativity piece is hard to kind of teach. Like that Correct. just comes inert. So they'll well, take someone with creativity over, you know, the background necessarily that they want. Or Vic, it's a muscle that's developed over time. So I'm curious to hear how you, cause I mean, right Vic, like when I started doing stand up or improv, holy shit, was it hard? Like you said, man, it's just like, it's almost psychotic what you're doing. It's so difficult to get the creative, the creative engine, you know, firing on all cylinders. Um, but Karen, like, you teach a class, this is a great point. So you teach a class on creativity and innovation, but the truth is, you know, there's a reason why many corporations don't have many creative people. It's a, a, imagination in some ways is dead. It's not, you know, and you're saying, no, imagination or creativity is being valued more now. Isn't that something that needs to be developed? That's why you're bringing in the second city people, right? Like how would you, how do you teach, you know, DePaul grad students, business students to, to build that muscle or am I thinking about it wrong? No, that's exactly right. So research shows that your creative self-efficacy, which is essentially your creative confidence can be built up over time through training and interventions. So if I every quarter went and took a second city class at the start of the year compared to the end of the year, I'm going to have more creative confidence. And then once I have more creative confidence, my innovation behavior is also going to be increased. So the more confident you feel in your ideas, the more, innovation that's going to happen, which it's kind of like a dog, which is a lot of science. Like it just proves things you kind of already know. <laughs> mm. um, but it's important, I think, for businesses because a lot of leaders get up and say, we must innovate. Like it's so important innovation. And then the employees are like, well, how do I do it? I, I, I get it. Of course I want to innovate, but you got to show me how you got to give me right. the skin. And ideas like jokes are very fragile, right? If you are confident in your creativity and you present an idea and you're worried about judgment, it's going to be very difficult. So that's why you want to build up someone's confidence. Cause I'm sure when you first started telling jokes, Vic, it was like, Ooh, I don't, I don't even want anybody to hear it. And now you're more confident and you're like, yes, I want everybody to hear it. So the same Absolutely. with that. Absolutely. Have you, have you heard of IDEO? Um, yeah. Study a lot of IDEO. Yes, absolutely. So, so they're, they, what are they? They're an innovation school at Stanford. Is that, is my understanding correct? IDEO is actually a company that okay. does product development, but it okay. was, formulated out of the folks at Stanford, the Kelly, Tom and David Kelly. Tom and David Kelly, right. I've read this yeah. book before. It was fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. I love it. It's fascinating. Because you use the word creative confidence, and that really had an impact on my ability to be creative. So, so that's kind of, would you say that's one of the, is that one of the textbooks you teach out of, or is that kind of what you're trying, is that what you're kind of te trying to teach? Yeah, I use some of their materials, and they're really the ones that coined the whole design thinking process. Mm. So I, I absolutely teach from their their stuff. I don't use their textbooks. I have just two paperback books and then it's a lot of like hands-on workshoppy type stuff for my class, but absolutely use a lot of their principles and techniques and all of that. They're yeah. awesome. Yeah. So, okay. So one, I remember one of the biggest things that I've never let go of and I use it, John, what's up? You got a pirate eye going there? What's going on? Arr. No, it's just, I don't have an ass. So when I slouch down, it's just my <laughs> pelvis against seat. So, yeah. Oh, right. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> At least you don't have a flat nose. Flat ass you can live with. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, so um, ideal. So, yeah, one of the biggest things I walked away with, Karen, from reading that book was um, it is okay to be cozy with your team. Like, it is okay to 
um, open up, you know, be vulnerable with your team at times. Like it, the old corporate, you know, adage of, you know, no politics, no religion, don't discuss any of that. Don't open up with, you know, keep, keep things really sterile at the, at the, at the, in the office. They were like, they kind of threw that out the window and that really stuck with me for a long time. And I, I try and I don't, I don't do it very successfully, but I'm working on it. Uh, in the small business that I, that I operate here, I try and practice that. Is that something you talk about as well in some of your classes? Yeah. So, and we also talk a lot about empathy and being sympath empathetic to your end user. So that's why Motorola, we went and did the police training classes so that you can understand the thoughts and feelings of others and the end user. And I'll say on the vulnerability piece, I'm working on that too. I don't know what it is, if it's like the Midwestern upbringing or I'm German or Catholic or what it is, but I am not good at vulnerability. Like I was raised to not show any sort of vulnerability, like any sort of weakness. I don't know what it is. So I'm working on that. Oh, we yeah. can practice right here. You can go ahead and cry in front of us right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't have tear ducts. I say that all the time. Like I just, no, I, I like my, I've never, I've seen my mother cry maybe once and that was recently because her cat died and that was it. So I don't know what, so I'm working on it. I'm a Brene Brown follower. It's culture. It's culture, baby, right? Like it's, it's, you, you are weak if you show sadness. Yeah, I don't even let people know if I'm sick. Like, I, well, of course, now I wouldn't. But I, like, I wouldn't, if I had a cold, like, I don't want people to know it's a sign of weakness. I will not be vulnerable in any way. I don't know what it is. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's culture. <laughs> I mean, that's like, I think that's a thing with comedy, too. When you start comedy, a lot of your jokes aren't, they aren't vulnerable. They're coming from a topical place. It's like what you think is going to be funny. And then you realize the more you do comedy, you're like, oh, people want to hear about the empathy and the, the vulnerable stuff I have, but I'm scared to share it because I'm not, I don't want to share like who I really am. Because then if they don't laugh at this, that means like I'm as a person, not funny. Like, it's not just like this idea is funny. It's like I don't know how you do it. Yeah, it's me and my core is not funny. But then those bits are what people really relate to. And it goes the same in the workplace, like the empathy angle. If the boss is empathetic and they say something, it's like, oh, this is still, like, we can all relate to this person. It's all about, also about relatability, but it's like, it's very hard. It's, it's easy to say that, and if you know what the right answer is, but to execute it is a totally different thing. My, my favorite joke, uh, which I didn't think would hit so hard, I thought it was kind of, I thought it was kind of, um, uh, <laughs> I thought it was a little hack, but it turned out to be one of my, my favorite jokes that I use now is about my wife and I. Um, and uh, it goes, I'll, I'll give it to you guys. It goes like this, and I say to the audience, hey guys, so I just celebrated five years with my wife. And they're all like, woo, yeah, wow. Especially the married people, because they're like, holy shit, yeah, five years, that's hard. You know, marriage is hard, you know? And so we connect for a moment about like, yeah, we're all in this together about marriage, you know? And then I go, uh, so on our anniversary dinner, I asked my wife, baby, if I die first, would you remarry? And she says to me, yes, come in. Sorry, guys, hang on one second. Okay. I'll come down. Yeah, I'll come down. Uh, so uh, uh, then I say to the audience, hey, baby, if I die first, I, you know, I'm at the anniversary dinner. If I die first, would you remarry? And she says, uh, no, I'd probably just move in with my sister. And then she asked me right after that, what if I die first? Would you remarry? And I say to her, no, I'd probably just move in with your sister. <laughs> And so then I, I, I have a bunch of tags and after that, but I remember thinking like that joke would, is kind of hack. Like I'm just saying the same thing she's saying, you know? Um, but I think because I set them up ahead of time, 
with some of the, the like, we're all in this together, five years, what if I die first? Like, these are things people think about. I think about this sometimes. Like, what if, you know, my kids, if I die, well, you know, all that stuff. And I, you know, a year ago lost my dad, so I've been thinking about death a lot more. Um, but I think that, to me, there's elements of vulnerability in, all, in, in that joke, and that, that's what people actually want to hear, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's why you bring them into your world a little bit, right? It's like, I think the jokes, I think the jokes that are more raw and honest, like you don't, you can put less time into the, the joke itself. Like if you look at the joke on paper, there's a lot of people that are really funny that you're like, if I read their transcript of material to myself, I'd be like, I don't, this doesn't really work for me. But if you see them deliver it, it's like how empathetically they deliver it, how much emotion they deliver it with. And it's like, if you believe them as a character on stage, like it works. And mm. I think that's a lot about, that's why comedy is frustrating because you can have the most like well-constructed bit, but then no one cares if it's like not delivered the right way. So you have to kind of learn how to do it in a way that's like has emotion behind it and, and makes people believe like you're saying something truthfully and authentically. And that's where like the study of humor is probably, it's fascinating because it's like there's endless kind of applications for it. Yeah, I agree. Um, all right, wonderful people. Uh, I've just gotten information that Uber Eats, DoorDash, and Postmates tablets are down at Cedars, our restaurant. So oh, wow. I'm gonna. <laughs> so once we open in about ten or fifteen minutes, uh, I want to make sure that we're getting orders because uh, we got to make that cheddar, people. Uh, Karen, thank you so much. It's been awesome to have you on. Um, yeah, yeah. You know what? What a. <laughs> What great stories you have. Holy. <laughs> I kind of want to interview you again, like next year, just to see what the hell happened in the past, in the, you know, in the past 12 months. Yeah. I'll be an astronaut or something with puppies. I'm sure. So <laughs> <laughs> on the moon or Mars, uh, Vic, yo, what's up, brother? It's been great to jump on this with you, man. I've always checked in with you at open mics here and there, but this is great to get to know you a little better, brother. Yeah, man, this has been fun. Thanks for having me. It's good to, good to talk about something other than the quarantine for a little bit. Right. <laughs> right. JD, what's up, brother? What's up? What's up? Uh, another podcast, man. Cool. <laughs> yeah, another. Y'all don't know. Y'all don't know. John's been with me now, rocking each episode for the last probably like thirty episodes, right, John? I think so. I I haven't been keeping track. Thank you, brother. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks. See ya. Peace out. See ya. Disclaimer, I do not provide personal investment advice and I am not a qualified licensed investment advisor. I am an amateur investor. All information found here, including any ideas, opinions, views, predictions, forecasts, commentaries, suggestions, or stock picks expressed or implied herein are for informational, entertainment, or educational purposes only and should not be construed as personal investment advice. While the information provided is believed to be accurate, it may include errors or inaccuracies. I will not and cannot be held liable for any actions you take as a result of anything you read, hear, or see here. Conduct your own due diligence, consult a licensed financial advisor or broker before making any and all investment decisions. Any investments, trades, speculations, or decisions made on the basis of any information found on this show, expressed or implied herein, are committed at your own risk, financial or otherwise. Business news and other shit, hereafter known as BNOS, reflects my own views, ideas, and opinions. It is not a production of my employer, nor is it affiliated with any, bro any broker, dealer, or registered investment advisor. No representations or warranties are made with respect to the accuracy or completeness of the content of this entire show, including any links to other sites. 
The links provided are maintained by their respective organizations and they are solely responsible for their content. All information presented here is provided as is, without warranty of any kind, expressed or implied. From time to time, I may include affiliate links and advertisements on BNOS that result in my receiving a payment should a visitor click on the link or sign up to a service as per established in their practice. Readers are entirely responsible for any actions they take as a result of reading or clicking on links on the site and are urged to read the small print. Sound fair enough? Then please subscribe to BNOS. It's free via RSS or email.